Our scripture text this evening comes from Revelation chapter 14, the very last book in the Bible. I invite you to turn there as we look at the first five verses. I thought this would be a fitting text as we, as a presbytery, install Nathan as a minister and in particular as a pastor of worship. One of his chief responsibilities, as you can imagine, will be to lead us in song. And so what better way than to reflect for just a few moments on the importance of singing for the Christian. And here we have an example in Revelation chapter 14, verse 1. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne, and before the four living creatures, and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who had not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. I'm sure you've noticed before that the Bible is full of singing. It doesn't come to us with a soundtrack. It doesn't come to us with notes on a page, but there are many, many songs. Of course, the Psalter, chief among them, 150 psalms, but there are also songs by Moses and Miriam, Deborah, Zechariah, David, Mary, Hannah. There are New Testament hymns to Christ in John and Romans and Philippians and Colossians and 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy and Hebrews. And there are doxologies, expressions, explosions of praise scattered throughout the Bible. Not to mention the songs in the book of Revelation in chapter 1, 4, 5, 7, 11, 14, and 15. Here in chapter 14, we have one of those songs. It begins, as he looks out and beholds on Mount Zion the Lamb. This is opposed to what has come before in the book of Revelation, and that is the counterfeit. If you flip back just one page, and you can see even the headings there. In chapter 12, there's a woman and the dragon. Satan is thrown down to earth. We have the first beast. We have the second beast. So we have been looking at, if you were reading along in Revelation, these counterfeit rulers and types of Christ, the beast, and Satan, the dragon, and now we see the real thing, the lamb. And he has with him his victorious followers, marked with his name, with the name of his father. And they are given this symbolic number, 144,000. This is not meant to be a, a literal number. The book of Revelation is filled with numbers. Sometimes people say, well, don't you take the Bible literally? Well, if by that, should we take the Bible on its own terms to be true in everything that it affirms? Well, certainly. But we, we don't take every bit of prophecy literally, meaning that we don't expect there to be uh, you know, a, a, a beast with 
multiple heads or a prostitute on a dragon. We take these to be symbols of what is happening or will happen in the world. And so it is with these numbers. 144,000 is a symbolic number for the church. 12 times 12 times 1,000. 12 being a number for God's people. 12 tribes of Israel. 12 disciples or apostles, and a thousand being a, a number of greatness, of multitude and completion. In chapter 7, we had a picture of the church that will be triumphant, that will be able to stand when the wrath of the Lamb is revealed. And here in chapter 14, we have a picture of the church that has stood firm until death and is now standing despite all opposition, despite counterfeit, is standing triumphant with the Lamb in glory. The 144,000 here in Revelation 14 are symbolic of a holy army. If you go back to chapter 7, where we're first introduced to 144,000, you see that they are listed by tribes. Verse 4, I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. And there it mentions Judah, Reuben, Gad, and through the list of the 12 tribes. The listing in chapter 7 is a census. And whenever you have a census in the Old Testament, it is at least in part a census taken for military purposes to account the number of people in your army, the number of males of an adult age who can wield the sword. So this accounting of 144,000 is the picture of a holy army, victorious, on high ground, looking down over their conquered foe. But this army and this conquest is not won by the spilling of the blood of our opponents. It is won by the shed blood of the Lamb. There is a massive difference between the two. Yes, we believe as Christians in a holy war, in a holy army, but it is one not by spilling the blood of our enemies, but by following the lamb who shed his blood and by us being willing even to die as we follow the same lamb. They're standing there in verse one on Mount Zion, literally the temple mount in Jerusalem, but it's also a picture of heaven in this case. Hebrews 12, 22, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, to the city of the living God. So we have here in verse 3 a, a throne room scene. If you're familiar with Revelation, you will detect these residences from earlier in the book with the four living creatures and the 24 elders. That was the scene there gathered around the one who sits on the throne with the seven lampstands and the lightning and the thunder and the explosion of colors. We don't see God, but we see the effects of God and we see the worship of God with the four living creatures, the 24 elders, and now gathering around with them in this throne room, we have the holy army, God's victors. Can't help but think of that scene at the end of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe thinking of the movie where Aslan roars on that ridge while his entire redeemed army steps up behind him, those that have been set free from being frozen by the witch's blast 
Or you think of Israel at war with the Arameans. And Elisha prays that the Lord would open his servant's eyes and see the hills full of chariots and horses. And he says, those who are with us are more than those who are with them. We need to be reminded of this. You need to be reminded as you suffer, as you suffer opposition, as you suffer from cancer, as you suffer from sleepless nights, as you suffer from strife and your family as you're discouraged by little fruit or you're saddened by the state of your family or your life, to look on the high and holy hill and that God would, as Elisha prayed, open our eyes. And though we may not see it literally, to open the eyes of our heart to see that there is a holy army standing with us, ready to do battle. Our battle is not ultimately against flesh and blood, but against rulers and principalities and powers and authority. And we stand with the church, not only visible, but that invisible gathering, the communion of the saints, the church triumphant. We see a picture of humanity divided into two warring camps. We have the followers of the beast, and then we have the followers of the lamb. And you notice in these verses several characteristics of those who follow the Lamb. Just note them. First, in verse 4, they have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. Now, that may seem strange that this 144,000 are marked out, the followers of the Lamb, are virgins. You may think, well, what does that mean? I'm married or I'm not a virgin. Does this mean I'm not in heaven? Remember, this is depicting a holy army. This is one of the requirements for the Israelite soldier engaged in holy war. Deuteronomy 23.9, when you are encamped against your enemy, keep away from everything impure. In 1 Samuel 21, David is hiding out at a place called Nob, and the priest Ahimelech is there, and David's men are hungry, but the only food is the consecrated bread, and the priest says, are your men pure? Have they kept themselves from women? And David says, of course, we always keep ourselves from women when we set out for battle. Or you remember when David wants to have Uriah the Hittite sleep with his wife Bathsheba because David's trying to cover the tracks of his sin. And Uriah refuses to do so because his men are still in battle and therefore he's still in battle and it would not be right for him to sleep with his wife while they were engaged in warfare. The issue is not some kind of unhealthy asceticism, but rather the Old Testament understanding that when you are engaged in warfare for Yahweh, you must have all your senses, all of your focus, all of your energies channeled to fight for him. So it's not so much sexual purity that's in mind here, but rather spiritual chastity. Remember, in the context of Revelation, the woman is the whore, the whore of Babylon, or the world, or the beast. So these are those, not saying in a literal sense, those who have never had sexual relations on earth, but rather those who have kept themselves pure, who have not compromised with the way of the world, and with the beast, and with the harlot. In Revelation 17, we'll see a woman riding on a beast, and she is depicted as the prostitute of Babylon. So we find that the church, by contrast, is a pure, spotless 
virgin bride, a holy army. Notice also it says, second, it is these who follow the lamb wherever he goes, the middle of verse 4. So he is their captain, and we follow our captain as good soldiers. And as soldiers in an army, we don't expect coddling. We expect there to be conflict. I think I've given the illustration I, I heard before. When, when you're a soldier in a battle and you're down in the, the, the trenches and someone across the way fires a shot at you, you don't stick your head up and say, was there something I said? You don't take it personally. You understand it's the nature of warfare to be shot at. And it's the nature of battle to follow your commanding officer. We follow the lamb. Yes, sir. Aye, aye, captain. Wherever you lead, we will follow. And they put the lamb to death, which means we will conquer, not by putting to death, but by laying down our lives all the way to death, if so called upon. And then notice, third, it says at the end of verse 4, they are first fruits. There were three annual feasts in Israel, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Harvest or Weeks or Pentecost, the Feast of Ingathering or Tabernacles. And at the beginning of the Feast of Harvest, they would get the first fruits and present them before the Lord. And at the end, they would celebrate the ingathering for a week when the harvest was finished. You understand the imagery? You present the, the first fruits of the wheat or the barley or the corn. Say, so here it is. We, we've begun the harvest and God has been faithful to us. And this, this first fruit that we're, we're celebrating is a foretaste of all that God will do at the ingathering at the end of the age. These glorified saints in heaven are, in other words, the fruits of the larger harvest to be accomplished. Again, we need some sense of history. We need to believe what we just professed we believe. I believe in the communion of the saints. Do you believe that there are men and women, some of your loved ones, who have gone before, some whose faces you can still see in your mind's eye after all those years of marriage. And you know they're gathered around the throne. They're part of this triumphant army, and they are there with the four living creatures and the 24 elders casting down their crowns to sing praise to God. And they are the first fruits of the harvest that hopefully we too will be a part of. And then you see at the end in verse 5, in their mouth, no lie was found. So we speak the truth about Jesus, and we are not deceived by the counterfeits concerning Jesus. We bear true and faithful witness. 1 John 2, 22, who is the liar? It is the man who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a man is the Antichrist. He denies the Father and the Son. So we imitate our captain, the Lord Jesus, about whom it says in Isaiah 53, 9, nor was any deceit in his mouth. And so we follow him as faithful witnesses. The summary at the end of verse 5 says they are blameless. It doesn't mean they're without sin. It means they are acceptable 
sacrifices, spotless as virgins. They follow him, even led to the slaughter. They are an offering of the harvest like first fruits. And just like the suffering servant, no deceit is found in their mouth. In other words, it means that the followers of the lamb, first of all, bear a striking resemblance to the lamb. It is not so much our spiritual gifts that will set us apart. It's not the gifts of the Spirit that mark us as the followers of the Lamb, as it is the fruit of the Spirit. And so we become the one that we worship. We become what we behold. That is the undeniable principle of worship. Whatever you behold, you become. Whatever you worship, that you become. You will become like your God. If you have an idol, you will become like that idol. That's why it's so important that we sing and we pray and we preach what is true. Why it's so important that you have put before you an image of the invisible God in all of his glory manifested in the face of Christ. That's why it's important that you would spend and I would spend more time in this word than we would spend in front of our phones on YouTube because you will become whatever you behold. And if you are beholding day after day all the things that the world has to offer, you will become more like that. If, on the other hand, you behold Christ in his word, you will become like him. The followers of the Lamb are marked out as bearing a resemblance to the Lamb. And there is one final characteristic of the Lamb's lamb's army. I skipped over it, verses 2 and 3. And that is that the army sings. You notice in verse 2, I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters, like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. Isn't that interesting? How does that work? We don't think of harpists on their harps being roar of many waters. You don't hear the kids these days. Did you hear the harps banging? Man, that was awesome. Bring, 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 bring. But something about the harps. So you need to get a vision of harps like thunder. Heaven sounds boring because I don't want harps. Well, these are apparently some really sweet harps because they're loud and they're spectacular. And they were singing, verse 3, a new song before the throne and the four living creatures. All throughout Scripture, the response of God's people to some great act of redemption is to sing. Job 38, 7, the morning stars sang together and the angels shouted for joy. Exodus 15, Moses and the Israelites sang after they crossed the Red Sea. They said, I will sing to the Lord for he is highly exalted. The horse and its rider he has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. In Numbers 21, when the Israelites dug a well and found water, they sang, spring up a well. In Judges 5, when God gave his people victory over Jabin and Sisera and the Canaanites, Deborah and Barak sang to the Lord. 
They sang in Hezekiah's day when the Passover was reinstated. They sang in Nehemiah's day when the wall was dedicated. They sang in Ezra's day when they laid the foundation of the temple with praise and thanksgiving. They sang Ezra 3.11, he is good, his steadfast love endures forever. God has given us music as a gift. Many of you have been in church for so long that it, no, it doesn't strike you as odd anymore. But do you think how strange it is how much we as Christians sing? People who, who aren't religious and don't go to church, when do they sing? I mean, corporately together. They may sing in the shower. They may sing uh, with the radio on. But when do they sing? When do people get together in numbers of hundreds or thousands and just sing? Now you have a concert, somebody's singing for you. The closest you can think of is at, is at a ball game, stand and sing the national anthem. That's sort of a, a collective liturgy as people sing. But have you ever stopped to think how strange it is that Christians are always singing? And rightfully so, because we have so much to sing about. Every Lord's Day, we celebrate the resurrection and the victory of the Lamb, our Captain, our Savior. And so we sing. Nathan's job, which he's undertaking, is massively important. Let me remind you of what you already know, I trust, that his job is not to come up with an entertaining service for us every Sunday. His job is not to please us. His job is not even to, to first of all, see that people have an opportunity to use their musical gifts. His first responsibility is to help us, Sunday after Sunday, all of us, sing songs of praise to God and to the Lamb. That's how important we take singing. That we would call somebody here, that we would invest time and, and resources and energy to say, would you, among the many important things you're going to do, help us like this holy army of God to sing praise? The most important musical sound every Sunday is not the organ, it is not the choir, it is not the soloist, it is not the orchestra. The most important musical sound every Sunday is you. It's the sound of the congregation singing. And we're blessed with very talented, committed people in the orchestra, in the choir, on the piano, singing solos, on the organ. The aim is to support and encourage you singing. That's why it's so important that we have songs that will teach, songs that are rich, songs that are deep, songs that you will sing around hospital beds when you hold a loved one's hand in their final moments, those sort of songs. Songs that aren't just okay, but songs that will teach you 
true and right doctrine? What would you know and believe of the Christian faith if you only had the songs on Sunday to teach you? That's what goes through our head. Ought to as we choose songs, not just, is this pretty good? Is this going to help equip the saints to know the whole counsel of God? We see here the glorified army of living sacrifices singing in heaven, celebrating God's final act of redemption. They sing a song that we have not yet learned, but we will one day as we will join them as the church triumphant and we will fear God and give him glory and we too will know this new song sung in response to God's final redemption of our bodies and our souls. We don't know what the song is, but I imagine it sounds a lot like this one. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas, established it upon the rivers. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates. Lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord of hosts, the Lord of banners, the Lord of armies. He is the King of glory. And so we have reason to sing. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we give thanks for this day and all that it represents. We give thanks most of all that we have reason not only to have someone as a chief musician among us, but more importantly, we have reason to be led in music for all that Jesus has done. We pray these things in his name. Amen.